Chapter Twenty Five of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Twenty Five. It was a relief to Stephen and Neville to see one of the horsemen coming up the rough hill track to the gate, and to think that they need no longer wait upon the fears or inhospitable whims of the Arab servants on the other side of the wall. As soon as the rider came near enough for his features to be sketched in clearly, Neville remembered having noticed him at one or two of the governor's balls where all arab dignitaries even such lesser lights as seeds and adels showed themselves but they had never met the man was not one of the southern chiefs whom nepal kiard had entertained at his own house stephen thought that he had never seen a more personable man as the seed rode up to the car saluting courteously though with no great warmth his face was more tanned than very dark by nature but it seemed brown in contrast to his light hazel eyes his features were commanding if not handsome and he sat his horse well altogether he was a notable figure in his immensely tall white turban wound with pale grey-brown camel's hair rope his grey cloth burnoose embroidered with gold flung back over an inner white burnoose his high black boots with wrinkled brown tops and his wonderful karooian hat of light straw embroidered with leather appliqué of coloured flowers and silver leaves steeple crowned and as big as a cartwheel hanging on his shoulders he and neville politely wished the blessings of allah and mohammed his prophet upon each other and neville then explained the errand which had brought him and his friend to the seeds house the seeds somewhat heavy though intelligent face did not easily show surprise it changed not at all though stephen watched it closely thou art welcome to hear all i can tell of my dead relation ben helim he said but i know little that everybody does not know it is certain then that ben helim is dead asked neville we had hoped the rumour lied he died on his way home after a pilgrimage to mecca gravely replied the seed ah neville caught him quickly we heard that it was in constantinople ben sleeman's expression was slightly strained he glanced from Neville's boyish face to Stephen's dark, keen one, and perhaps fancied suspicion in both. If he had intended to let the Englishmen drive away in their motor-car without seeing the other side of his white wall, he now changed his mind. If thou and thy friend care to honour this poor farm of mine by entering the gates and drinking coffee with me, he said, we will afterwards go down below the hill to the cemetery where my cousin's body lies buried his tombstone will show that he was el hajjed and that he had reached mecca when he was in constantinople he had just returned from there 
possibly having given the invitation by way of proving that there was nothing to conceal ben sleeman hoped it would not be accepted but he was disappointed before the seade had reached the top of the hill neville had told his chauffeur to stop the motor therefore the restless panting had long ago ceased and when ben sleeman looked doubtfully at the car as if wondering how it was to be got in without doing damage to his wall neville said that the automobile might stay where it was their visit would not be long but the longer the better replied the seade when i have guests it pains me to see them go he shouted a word or two in arabic and instantly the gates were opened the sketchily clad brown men inside had only been waiting for a signal i regret i cannot ask my guests into the house itself as i have illness there ben sleeman announced but we have guest rooms here in the gate towers they are not what i could wish for such distinguished personages but thou canst see sidi thou and thy friend that this is a simple farmhouse we make no pretensions to the luxury of towns but we do what we can as he spoke the brown men were scuttling about one unfastening the door of the little tower which stuck as if it had not been opened for a long time another darting into the house which appeared silent and tenantless a third and fourth running to a more distant part and vanishing also through a dark doorway the seade quickly ushered his guests into the tower room but not so quickly that the eyes of a girl looking through the screened window did not see and recognize both the servant who had gone ahead unbarred a pair of wooden shutters high up in the whitewashed walls of the tower which were stiflingly close with a musty animal odor as the opening of the shutters gave light enormous black beetles which seemed to stephen as large as pigeons eggs crawled out from cracks between wall and floor stumbling awkwardly about and falling over each other it was a disgusting sight and did not increase the visitor's desire to accept the seade's hospitality for any length of time it may be that he had thought of this but even if he had the servants were genuinely enthusiastic in their efforts to make the romias at home the two who had run farthest returned soonest they staggered under a load of large rugs wrapped in unbleached sheeting and a great sack stuffed full of cushions which bulged out at the top the sheeting they unfastened and taking no notice of the beetles hurriedly spread on the rough floor several beautifully woven rugs of bright colors then having laid four or five on top of one another they clawed the cushions out of the sack and placed them as if on a bed hardly had they finished when the first servant who had disappeared came back carrying over his arm a folding table and dishes in his hands the only furniture already in the tower consisted of two long low wooden benches without backs and as the servant from the house set up the folding table he who had opened the windows placed the benches one on either side at the same moment through the open door a man could be seen running with a live lamb flung over his shoulder good heavens what is he going to do with that stephen asked 
stricken with a presentiment. I'm afraid, Neville answered quickly in English, that it's going to be killed for our entertainment. His pink color faded, and in Arabic he begged the Seyed to give orders that, if the lamb were for them, its life be spared, as they were under a vow never to touch meat. This was the first excuse he could think of, and when, to his joy, a message was sent after the slayer of innocence, he added that, very unfortunately, they had a pressing engagement which would tear them away from the Seyed's delightful house all too soon. Perhaps the Seyed's face expressed no oppressive regret, yet he said kindly that he hoped to keep his guests at least until next morning. In the cool of the day they would see the cemetery, they would return and eat the evening meal. It would then be time to sleep, and with a gesture he indicated the rugs and cushions under which the beetles were now buried like mountain dwellers beneath an avalanche. Neville, still pale, thanked his host earnestly, complimented the rugs, and assured the seaid that, of course, they would be extraordinarily comfortable. But even such inducements did not make it possible for them to neglect their duty elsewhere. In any case, we shall now eat and drink together, said Ben Sleeman, pointing to the table, and towards a servant now arriving from the house with a coffee tray. The dishes had been set down on the bare board, and one contained the usual little almond cakes, the other, a conserve of some sort bathed in honey, where already many flies were reveling. The servant who had spread the table quietly pulled the flies out by their wings, or killed them on the edge of the dish. Neville, whiter than before, accepted cordially, and giving Stephen a glance of despair, which said, Noblesse oblige. He thrust his fingers into the honey, where there were fewest flies, and took out a sweet meat. Stephen did the same. All three ate, and drank sweet black café mauer. Once the seaid turned to glance at something outside the door, and his secretive light gray eyes were troubled. As they ate and drank, they talked, Neville tactfully catechizing, the seaid answering with pleasant frankness. He did not inquire why they wished to have news of Ben Halim, who had once lived in the house for a short time, and had now long been dead. Perhaps he wished to give the Ramiz a lesson in discretion, but as their friendliness increased over the dripping sweets, Neville ventured to ask a crucial question. What had become of Ben Halim's American wife? Then for the first time the Seyed frowned, very slightly, but it was plain to see he thought a liberty had been taken which, as a host, he was unable to resent. I know nothing of my dead cousin's family, he said. No doubt its members went with him, if not to Mecca, at least part of the way. And if any such persons wished to return to Europe after his death, it is certain they would have been at liberty to do so. This house my cousin wished me to have, and I took possession of it in due time, finding it empty and in good order. If you search for anyone, I should advise searching in France, or, perhaps, in America. 
unluckily there i cannot help but when it is cool we will go to the cemetery let us go after the prayer the prayer of mogreb but neville was reluctant so was stephen when the proposal was explained they wished to go while it was still hot or not at all it may be that even this eccentric proposal did not surprise or grieve the seaid though as a rule he was not fond of being out of doors in the glare of the sun he agreed to the suggestion that the motor car should take all three down the hill but said that he would prefer to walk back the tuff tuff of the engine began once more outside the white gates and for the second time victoria flew to the window pressing her face against the thick green mucharabia which excluded flies and prevented any one outside from seeing what went on within calm thyself o rose urged the feeble voice of leila mabarka thou hast said these men are nothing to thee one is my friend the girl pleaded with a glance at the high couch of rugs on which mabarka lay a young girl cannot have a man for a friend he may be a lover or a husband but never a friend thou knowest this in thy heart o rose and thou hast sworn to me that never hast thou had a lover victoria did not care to argue i am sure he has come here to try and find me he is anxious that is very good of him all the more because we are nothing to each other how can i let him go away without a word it is too hard-hearted i do think if si maïeddine were here he would say so too he would let me see mr knight and just tell him that i'm perfectly safe and on the way to my sister that once she lived in this house and i hope to find her here but maïeddine would not wish thee to tell the young man these things or any other things or show thyself to him at all mabarka persisted lifting herself on the bed in growing excitement dost thou not guess he runs many dangers in guiding thee to the wife of a man who is as one dead dost thou wish to ruin him who risks his whole future to content thee no of course i would do nothing which could bring harm to see me adine victoria said the eagerness dying out of her voice i have kept my word with him i have let nobody know nobody at all but we could trust mr knight and mr keyard and to see them there in the courtyard and let them go it is too much why shouldst thou consider me whom thou hast known but a few days when thou wouldst be hurrying on towards thy sister Seda? yet it will surely be my death if thou makest any sign to those men my heart would cease to beat it beats but weakly now with a sigh victoria turned away from the mucharabia and crossing the room to mcbarka sat down on a rug by the side of her couch i do consider thee she said if it were not for thee and si maïeddine i might not be able to get to sadie at all so i must not mind being delayed a few days it is worse for thee than for me because thou art suffering when a true believer lies ill for more than three days his sins are all forgiven him 
Mabarka consoled herself. She put out a hot hand and laid it on Victoria's head. Thou art a good child. Thou hast given up thine own will to do what is right. I am not quite sure at this moment that I am doing what is right, murmured Victoria. But I can't make thee more ill than thou art, so I must let Mr. Knight go, and probably I shall never see him, never hear of him again. He will look for me, and then he will grow tired and perhaps go home to England before I can write to let him know I'm safe with Sadie. Her voice broke a little. She bent down her head, and there were tears in her eyes. She heard the creaking of the gate as it shut. The motor car had gone panting away. For a moment it seemed as if her heart would break. Just one glimpse had she caught of Stephen's face and it had looked to her more than ever like the face of a knight who would fight to the death for a good cause. She had not quite realized how noble a face it was, or how hard it would be to let it pass out of her life. He would always hate her if he guessed she had sat there, knowing he had come so far for her sake. She was sure it was for her sake, and had made no sign, but he would not guess and it was true as leila mabarka said he was nothing to her sadie was everything and she was going to sadie she must think only of sadie and the day of their meeting stephen had never seen an arab cemetery and it seemed to him that this mussulman burial place scattered over two low hills in midst of desert wastes was beautiful and pathetic the afternoon sunshine beat upon the kubahs of marabouts and the plastered graves or headstones of less important folk but so pearly pale were they all that the golden quality of the light was blanched as if by some strange white magic and became like moonlight shining on a field of snow there were no names on any of the tombs even the grandest here and there on a woman's grave was the hand of fatma or a pair of the prophet's slippers, and on those of a few men were turbans carved in marble, to tell that the dead had made pilgrimage to Mecca. All faces were turned towards the sacred city, as Muslim men turned when they kneeled to pray, in mosques or in deserts, and the white slabs, narrow or broad, long or short, ornamental or plain, flat or roofed with fantastic maraboutic domes, were placed very close together at one end of the cemetery only bits of pottery marked the graves yet each bit was a little different from the other meaning as much to those who had placed them there as names and epitaphs in european burial grounds on the snowy headstones and flat platforms drops of rose-coloured wax from little candles lay like tears of blood shed by the mourners and there was a scattered spray of faded orange blossoms brought by some loving hand from a faraway garden in an oasis here lies my cousin cassim ben halim said the sayed pointing to a grave comparatively new surmounted at the head with a carved turban nearer to it than any other tomb was that of a woman beautified with the prophet's slippers is it possible that his wife lies beside him stephen made neville ask it is a lady of his house 
i can say no more when his body was brought here hers was brought also in a coffin which is permitted to the women of islam with the request that it should be placed near my cousin's tomb this was done and it is all i can tell because it is all i know the arab looked the englishman straight in the eyes as he answered and stephen felt that in this place so simple so peaceful so near to nature's heart it would be difficult for a man to lie to another even though that man were the son of islam the other a dog of a christian for the first time he began to believe that cassim ben halim had in truth died and that victoria ray's sister was perhaps dead also her death alone could satisfactorily explain her long silence and against the circumstantial evidence of this little grave adorned with the slippers of the prophet there was only a girl's impression victoria's feeling that if sadie were dead she must have known the two friends stood for a while by the white graves where the sunshine lay like moonlight on snow and then because there was nothing more for them to do in that place they thanked the seaid and made ready to go their way again he politely refused their offer to drive him up to his own gate and bade them good-bye when they had got into the car he stood and watched it go bumping away over the rough desert road pieces of which had been gnawed off by a late flood as a cake is bitten round the edge by a greedy child they had had enough of motor-cars for that day up there on the hill the seade was glad when the sound died the machine was no more suited to his country he thought than were the men of europe who tore about the world in it trying to interfere in other people's business el hamdal lila god be praised he whispered as the yellow automobile vanished from sight and maeddine came out from the cluster of black tents in the yellow sand end of chapter twenty five